0: Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. As we've looked ahead in Daniel, Pastor Nathan and I, um, there are some longer chapters coming up that really they hold together so tightly that the next couple of weeks are going to be rather long readings in Daniel. uh, But we're going to take them together one chapter at a time rather than trying to to find a way to break them up. Uh, This evening we're finishing up the story of uh, the three who were thrown into the fiery furnace? We finished that reading last week at the end of 23. What, what's happening in Daniel? Daniel is an apocalyptic book. In part, it's a prophetic book. Uh, you get these fantastic dreams and visions that are happening here, and the book is not even chronological. It's going to hop back and forth throughout the 70 some odd years that that Daniel is an exile in Babylon, and. Uh, It can be quite difficult at times, but it helps to stop and back up and consider the big picture. Daniel is written to uh, the people of God in exile, and they are in exile here at the beginning under one of the most powerful kings, not only that had ever lived up to that point, but that has still to this day ever lived and ruled in the world. And under the power of that king, it would have been easy to imagine Jerusalem is destroyed we are in exile. Nebuchadnezzar is more powerful than our God. And God, through Daniel and through the, what, what's recorded in the book of Daniel, God is going to say to his people and to the world over and over again that you, you can take this, the most powerful king that has ever lived, give him all of the wealth and all of the glory that man has to offer, and God is yet bigger. Uh, And that's what we see this evening. We've actually got in Daniel, the part of Daniel that we're in, three consecutive stories about Nebuchadnezzar. And in each story, what's being called into question is is where Nebuchadnezzar stands relative to the God who created all things. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar increasingly across those three stories confess God. He's going to do it sort of grudgingly in the first one, as we've already seen. Uh, we come to the end of this evening, and it's he's going to do it more enthusiastically. But it's still not his God; it's their God that he is going to extol. And by the end of the third and final story next week, we're going to see that it, it certainly appears as though he has become, uh, God has become Nebuchadnezzar's God. Uh, I, I will not be here next week. I'm going to be at an ordination service. Pastor Nathan is preaching Daniel 4. I won't steal his thunder. Uh, he may have a different opinion, but I, I'm hopeful we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven at least based on the record of the book of Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar is on a journey through these three narratives in which God is increasingly revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. But what God is doing above all things is showing that he is the greatest God. He is the God of all and is greater than any earthly king, even the greatest earthly king. And that that is both a testimony to those earthly kings and a comfort to his people. And so this week we're, again, jumping right back into the middle of this story. Let me pray, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples of faithfulness. Uh, But above all things, we thank you for your continuing evidence throughout your word that you are a God who loves us, that though you do not keep us from trials, you were with us in trials and you minister to us in the midst of trials, and that in the end of all things, salvation will be ours because you are our God. And so, Father, we thank you that even though in this world today, it sometimes seems as though the world is too powerful. You have constantly reminded us that you are more powerful still. We give thanks for these things and pray that your spirit would minister to us this evening as we read your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way than the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Well, this evening, uh, three things. Christ delivers us through the trials of this world, not always from them. He delivers us through the trials of this world, not always from them. Second, Christ is with us and ministers to us in our trials. Christ is with us and ministers to us in our trials. And finally, our deliverance is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Our deliverance is is to the praise of God's glorious grace. First, Christ delivers us through the trials of this world, not always from them. If the story of Daniel 3 were written by Hollywood, I imagine the deliverance, no matter how late it came, would still have had to have come before they were thrown into the fire. No matter uh, how much suspense they might have built into the story, uh, it would seem that at the point at which they were thrown into the fire, deliverance would have been off the table. And this is how our prayers often run, don't they? Lord, please keep me from this trial. And such prayers are not wrong. It's not wrong to want to be spared the trial. It's not wrong uh, to, to say, I don't want to go through this. Christ himself set that example for us, didn't he? He said, uh, not, not my will, but your will be done after having said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. The difficulty... Comes When we believe he must deliver us from them in order to be good, in order to be loving. If we pray, deliver me from this trouble, and God does not deliver you from that trouble, but delivers you instead through it, did he refuse to answer your prayer? Was he ignoring you? It's too easy to believe that that's what happened. It's, uh, it's In my experience as a minister, it's a very real thing. That people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, when they go through difficult trials, they wrestle with the question, what happened? How could this have happened? Is God ignorant of what I'm suffering? Does he not care about what I'm suffering? Is he not powerful enough to have done something to keep me from this suffering? And I've known people who have walked away from the faith, Because those are the questions they're asking. And for them, their suffering was determinative. Their suffering is a kind of proof to them that God somehow does not care, that He is not loving enough. This is a very real difficulty for us in suffering. But brothers and sisters, Scripture, if anyone were to stand before God and say, I suffered and therefore I was pretty sure you weren't there. The the Bible is filled, filled with instruction to us that we will suffer suffering as a follower of Christ is a part of the life that God has ordained for us and he does all sorts of things with our suffering and in our suffering he uses it to strengthen us and to shape us to sanctify us he uses it to reveal his own goodness as he does finally deliver us through that suffering God uses it for all sorts of things, and sometimes we don't know how he's using particular suffering. But nonetheless, he has told us that we will indeed suffer. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are in the midst of the fire in our text this evening. They were not spared being thrown into that furnace and though they they come out completely unharmed without even the smell of smoke on them if we we try to put ourselves in their shoes I'm going to be honest it couldn't have been pleasant as they were soaring through the air on their way into the furnace to contemplate what was about to happen to them and here they are in the midst of the fire Christ tells us we're going to suffer. The New Testament's filled with instruction on how to suffer. Why then are we surprised when we suffer? Why in the midst of suffering would we say to ourselves, I wonder if God knows that I'm suffering? Why would we say to ourselves, I wonder why I'm suffering? God has told us in Christ over and over again through His Word in the Old Testament and in the New. We have Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We're going to go through those valleys. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus tells us in the Gospels, If they malign the master of the household, the servants will also be maligned. We have the ultimate example of suffering in the Old Testament in the the person of Job, who in the midst of terrible loss and trials fell down and worshipped and said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job understands that though God has not delivered him from suffering, He will deliver him through it. Trials in this world are what we're told to expect, but we're also promised that He will deliver us through them. And so do not let your trials and suffering be the cause of unbelief. And there are two ways particularly that I've seen difficult suffering in the life of a Christian lead to unbelief. One are those questions that we ask we believe the lie that we suffer because God doesn't know or care or cannot do anything about it. Or maybe that's, that's even more thoughtful than we've, we are in that moment. Maybe we're just flat out angry at God that we would suffer as we do. And in that anger, we turn our backs on Him. It potentially leads to unbelief. Another more subtle way, and this is perhaps even more common Unbelief can be the result of refusing to suffer, giving in to the world, being carried along by the world's demands, effectively worshiping other gods rather than the one true creator God. That option was open to these three here, wasn't it? Uh, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah could well have been faced with the insistence I think we make Nebuchadnezzar into too much of a cartoon character sometimes when we read the book of Daniel. To stand before a Nebuchadnezzar who is enraged. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that they be brought. Nebuchadnezzar, apart from what we know of who God is and how God works... From a worldly perspective, Nebuchadnezzar holds life and death in his hands, and he holds much worse than death. He can make that death a very, very painful and extended one. Nebuchadnezzar is not a king who has a parliament he has to answer to. Nebuchadnezzar commands the greatest empire that had ever existed up to that point, and he commands it with absolute authority. He answers to no one, and he kills on a whim and he tortures for fun. And all they've got to do is just bow down. It's just three guys in a crowd of of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Just do it. Ask forgiveness later. Unbelief follows when we refuse to suffer. When we, bit by bit, Quietly in little ways that just don't seem to be that big of a deal, we give in to the demands of the culture around us. We refuse to speak the truth, and we refuse to live according to the truth in tiny little ways that just don't seem to matter that much. But brothers and sisters, I've seen it wreck the faith. We've got to be willing to suffer if suffering is that to which we have been called by God. Second this evening, Christ is with us and ministers to us in the trials. Notice in the text, they're not only delivered from the fire, but they're free in the fire and they have somebody with them. Uh, Take a look at the text again very quickly. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 25, But I see four men unbound." walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Uh, the text doesn't demand that we understand that fourth person to be Christ. But I'm inclined to believe that it is. Uh, the, the language of a son of the gods points in that direction. The fact that he calls this angel, Nebuchadnezzar calls this an angel a little later and says that the angel delivered them. It's certainly possible that this is an angel of God doing the work of God, but I am inclined to believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's with them here in the fire. He's not content to save them from afar. This is another reason I believe it's Christ himself. He's gone into the fire with them. And in the fire, he has fellowship with them. They're walking and talking. This is the language of fellowship. God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a strange thing. Nathan and I were laughing about that earlier. The walking part. What a strange detail to have included. I don't know how big this furnace was uh, or how long they were in it before Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. But they've had time to walk around. I don't know if they're, they're just sort of pacing Or what's happening? It's a strange detail. And I'm inclined to believe that while I'm certain it's a true detail, it's a particular detail that's here and it points to fellowship. They are walking and talking with this fourth person. Christ has not been content to save them from afar, but has gone into the fire with them. The three don't die in the fire, but it's a kind of death. And they're rising up from the furnace as a kind of resurrection. They come forth with no smell of smoke or mark on them. There's all kinds of detail here that reminds me of Lazarus' resurrection. Roll the, the stone away, Jesus says. I can't remember. I think it's Mary. He says, uh, but Lord, he's going to have a smell. It's been more than three days now. Four days, if I remember correctly. She says, it's not going to be pleasant. And Jesus says, it's okay. Roll the stone away. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and he doesn't smell. He's not not dead, and his body is not decayed. In the same way, these three come out of this suffering. It's a kind of resurrection, and it's accomplished by Jesus going into the fire with them. Jesus didn't save us from afar, but came into the world and dwelt among us, taking on true humanity, so that in himself, God and man dwell together in his very person, in peace. And in his person, he dwells among us as one of us. Jesus did not save from afar. By saving us, he was reestablishing fellowship between God and man. So he came and did that himself in person. And then he promised to be with us even to the end of the age, even as he was in the furnace with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's not, it would have been miraculous. It would have been amazing, wouldn't it, if these three had gone into the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar had jumped up and said, hey, what's the deal? They're, they're not bound anymore. They're walking around. They're fine. Let's call them out here and see what happens. Christ is not content to save from afar, but goes into the suffering with us. He has come into this fallen world and stands with us, ministering to us. The Spirit dwells with us, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6, testifying to our spirits that we are children of God, Romans 8, 16, sealing us, keeping us until the day of redemption, guaranteeing our inheritance, Ephesians 1. When Christ ascended into heaven, He promised that He would be with us even to the end of the the age, and He has sent His Spirit who dwells in us. Christ is with us in the midst of our suffering. It's not a sentiment. It's not a a nice idea. Christ is literally with us in the midst of our suffering. And he preserves us through that suffering. He's with us in the midst of our trials as surely as he was with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And because he is with us, nothing has any power over us that God has not granted. And if he grants it, it is both for our good and his glory. Look back at the text, verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. There is no one in this world and nothing in this world that can have any power over you who belong to Jesus Christ that God has not granted to them. And if God has granted them the power to harm you, as difficult as it is, it must be for our good and for God's glory. It it is suffering. We're not denying that it's suffering. But it's suffering that God has ordained and that he permits for our good and his glory so that we see in this evening's text that Christ delivers us through the trials of this world, not always from them. Nonetheless, in the midst of those trials, Christ is with us and ministers to us. And finally, this evening, Uh, we see that our deliverance is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Notice the result of Christ showing up in the fire, freeing His servants and protecting them through the fire. The result is that God is praised. In tonight's text, it's a pagan king who praises God. Most of the time in our own experience, it's we ourselves who praise Him when He delivers us from something. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ who praise Him because we've been delivered from something There are times, however, when even unbelievers, perhaps unwittingly, not even fully aware of the ramifications of what they're saying, will give glory to God in the face of His great works of salvation and deliverance. A day is coming when everyone will see God's salvation in Christ, and they will praise Him. Unfortunately, on that day, some will do so contrary to their will as enemies who are defeated on the last day. The rest of us will do so gladly, having been won by Christ to himself now. This is what Paul's getting at when he says in Philippians 2, he he describes Christ having humbled himself, and because he humbled himself even to the point of death, Paul says God is exalting him God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, our salvation is a means by which God is glorifying himself. What Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, that's going to happen. It's happening now. It's unfolding now. But it will finally and completely happen on the day of our salvation. When we, in effect, are plucked out of the fire, unharmed. And the world recognizes, even as Nebuchadnezzar does here, the greatness of our God. In our story this evening, we see a kind of judgment, a kind of end of the world almost, if you will, as these three go into the fire. But Christ has come into the fire with them, has ministered to them there, has freed them even in the midst of the fire. We ourselves are free even now in Christ, though we are still in the midst of the fire. And Jesus has come, saved us in the midst of that fire, raised us up. And God will be praised. And we praise Him now. We praise Him now when we have come to faith, when we have believed the gospel and known our own salvation. We praise Him when we see others coming to faith, trusting in Him, entering into their own salvation. And a day is coming when that that salvation, which now is not recognized by everyone, on that last day cannot be ignored when Christ comes in power in the clouds and the trumpet blasts And the entire world comes to know that Jesus Christ has come and all will bow down, whether they want to worship him or refuse to, all will bow down at the name of Jesus. Our salvation results in praise to God now and in eternity. John records in Revelation 5, 12, the song that he heard them singing in the throne room of heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This means that praise is the proper response to Christ's work of salvation in history and in the hearts of his people. It also teaches us that God can no more abandon us to hell then he can set aside his own glory. Our salvation is as sure as God's own glory is certain, because he has tied the two together inseparably. He will be glorified by our deliverance. We get this fantastic story in Daniel. It seems so far removed from us, not only because it's, it's a, a culture that's so far removed from us, but because we don't see these kinds of miraculous things happening today. Uh, they weren't common then, but they're, they're much less common now. And so we read it, and it feels like a spectacular story. Uh, and yet, the truth that's being revealed in this story is the truth that we live in every day. We are a people in exile, and as such, we suffer. And God has not promised to deliver us away from the suffering yet, but he has promised to be with us in the midst of it. To minister to us and in the end when he delivers us out of it forever it will be to the praise of his glorious grace let's pray